Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, flare-ups on two polarizing issues in America. Guns and abortion reach new levels of concern. Overnight, more gun violence. We'll tell you what's happened, and we'll look at the impact it's having on us and our children. We'll talk with Arizona's Democratic Senator Mark Kelly in a rare Sunday interview as conservatives wrap up their annual NRA conference. Stop endangering our lives with gun bans and stop trampling on the God-given rights of the American people. The issue is not too many guns. The issue is too many thugs, hoodlums, and savage criminals on our street. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson once headed up the school shield program for the NRA. Now he's running for president. He'll join us. And as the Supreme Court considers whether a decades-old abortion drug should remain on the market, we'll talk with New Mexico's Democratic Governor, Michelle Luan Grisham. Then questions continue as more jaw-dropping revelations are reported from those classified documents discovered on social media platforms as a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman is arrested and accused of publishing intelligence secrets. I've instructed the department to make sure that they get to the root of why he had access in the first place. And just how damaging are the leaks to our national security? President Biden says he's not concerned. Nothing contemporaneous that I'm aware of that is of great consequence. We'll get an assessment from the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner. Finally, the head of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, joins us to talk about the state of the global economy. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We are monitoring a developing story in Dadeville, Alabama. Overnight there, there was a shooting at a 16th birthday party at a local dance hall. Information at this point is very limited, but the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency reports there have been four fatalities and multiple injuries. Another big story we are covering today is abortion rights and the increasingly tighter restrictions across the country following the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade nearly a year ago. We begin with our Mark Strassman in Atlanta. Dadeville, Alabama. Population, roughly 3,000. The scene of a weekend Sweet 16 party that turned to horror. Also overnight, two people were killed when someone fired shots into a crowd in Louisville, Kentucky, still reeling from last week's bank massacre. This has been an unspeakable week of tragedy for our city. New Mexico authorities just released this police body cam footage. 
officers responding to a domestic violence call. It's the wrong house. But the confused homeowner is apparently armed and police fatally shoot him. It's another American front line, what to do about gun violence. Our new CBS News poll shows roughly three in four Americans believe mass shootings are preventable. Increasingly worried parents, 77% at least somewhat concerned, up from an already high 72% last year. About 60% of parents say their kids worry about gun violence. What about fewer guns or no guns? 83% of Democrats say America would be safer but only 25% of Republicans. Easy access to guns contrasts with abortion access in America. Our Our More precarious than ever. By Wednesday midnight, another potential Supreme Court milestone, deciding the future availability of Mifepristone, the most commonly taken abortion drug. More broadly, our CBS News poll shows American women, by a roughly four-to-one margin, believe access to reproductive health care is getting harder, especially in red states. More than half of voters in those states see more restrictions coming. Take Florida. Last Thursday, Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law a bill banning abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. With Florida's new law, abortion access here in the South essentially is limited to two states, North and South Carolina. Republican leaders generally approve states deciding the abortion issue. But our poll shows more than half of Americans believe the Republican Party is trying to ban abortion nationally rather than let states decide. That view is driven by abortion rights supporters, both Democrats and independents. Mark Strassman in Atlanta. We turn now to former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who is attending a Republican gathering in Nashville. Um, Governor, it's good to have you here. I know you've said you are running for president. So I want to start there. What is the affirmative reason you want to be chief executive of the United States of America? Because we need leadership that brings out the best of America and doesn't appeal to our worst instincts. We need to have leadership that understands our responsibility across the globe and that we're not an isolationist party or country. And so whenever you look at the challenges we face from uh, the economy that we could be headed into a recession uh, to our border security and the fentanyl crisis that we face uh, to the lack of energy supply that's so critical to uh, our growth in our country. These are all issues that uh, I think need to be solved. And my experience as Congress, as head of the DEA, uh, involved in national security issues uh, mm-hmm. gives me the capability to address those. And I'm excited about the opportunity to run. Well, I want to ask you about one of the issues on the minds, certainly of a lot of American uh, parents, uh, according to our polling, that is most certainly gun violence. Six in 10 parents say their kids express worry to them about gun violence, either a lot or sometimes. Um, you were with us last after Uvalde. When an 18-year-old man took an AR-15 carrying three times the amount of ammunition that a soldier carries into combat and massacred elementary school children. At that period of time, you told me the U.S. should look at the type of triggers that can alert law enforcement. What triggers do you want to write into law? Well, whenever you look at uh, each of these incidences of mass shootings, and that's the challenge that we face in America. We ought to always be looking at what can make a difference? What can we do to save lives? And uh, that's why I worked uh, very hard on the National School Shield Initiative Mm -hmm. as to what expertise we can bring in the schools to bring more safety. Whenever you look at the Uvalde shooting, uh, I looked at uh, what the solutions were. And thank goodness we had Senator Cornyn and Senator Murphy that stepped up to the plate and said there's a bipartisan solution that can address uh, that particular instance. And so uh, these are steps that have been proven to be successful in in saving lives. And I think we continue to look at what can be done. 
Well, that appears to be the limit of what Congress is willing to do, that bipartisan Safer Communities Act you just referenced. Um, and in it, there was over a billion dollars appropriated for mental health resources at school. Just $188 million has actually been allocated to about 30 states. There was money in it to incentivize red flag laws. But in these states like Kentucky and Tennessee, where these shootings have just happened, they don't have red flag laws. They don't appear to want them there. So how do you fix that connection between mental health and mass shootings? Well, the investment is important. And in Arkansas, we made sure that our school counselors can devote them time to actually counseling with students and not doing administrative work. And so putting more money into the uh, school resources and the mental health services across the board are important. More than a billion Uh, dollars already allocated? Well, uh, the states have to pick up that responsibility as well. And yes, you shift into enhancing those mental health services, but also uh, making sure that we have the capacity to identify and respond if someone poses a risk. Mm -hmm. And this is important, Margaret, that we have to look at actually utilizing the law that's on the books. And it's been there since uh, the 70s, but it was used in a different way. And that is, if somebody is a danger to themselves or a risk to others, then they can be committed. It has to go before a judge. Mm -hmm. There has to be a hearing on it. But we aren't utilizing that. And that we need to change uh, the context of our society to take those steps whenever we identify those mental health problems that pose those kind of risk. Okay, but that assumes identification of the problem. The shooter in Louisville was 25 years old. His family said he had no history of violence. He had no police record. And he bought an AR-15 style weapon six days before he carried out this massacre. Your solution doesn't solve for that. Well, it doesn't solve every problem. You've got you've got uh, instances of mass shootings that are caused by mental illness and the failure to respond to those instances you can identify. And here you cite a case. So I think we're still learning the facts, but uh, it's evil. And you've got to be able to enforce the law and you've got to send the signal that uh, there's going to be uh, serious consequences and the death penalty when somebody through a pure act of evil carries out that kind of shooting. He was killed. You've got to go to the heart of that problem. Okay, he was killed on site. Um, The CDC says that more than 50 percent of Americans will be diagnosed with a mental illness or disorder at some point in their lifetime. So the numbers are with you in terms of mental health crisis in this country. That's 50 percent of Americans. How are you going to decide who has enough of a problem to institutionalize? Where are you going to draw that line? Well, that's the line that I just recited that's in the law currently, which is not that you have are suffering from depression or not that you uh, have to go into counseling for some reason. We all have those issues in life. But if it reaches the point of paranoia, sociopathic uh, behavior, or that you're a risk to yourself of suicide or you're a risk to others in terms of homicide, then we as a society... Uh, if we can identify that, which we can, we have to act on it. And, and it's not adjudicated by a police officer. It is by a court where evidence is received. But we have failed in our society to utilize and to act upon that. And so mental illness is there. Uh, but whenever it gets to the level of risk and danger to others, we should act as a society. And we've ignored that for the last uh, really 50 years And we're going to have to change if we're going to address the issues that we see. But there are states who are literally turning down money on the table that's in that act you just praised to put in place red flag laws that would allow for family members to say, hey, my loved one is a danger and shouldn't be allowed to buy that weapon. Those state governments in Tennessee and in Kentucky didn't have those laws. They didn't want them there. So are you talking about some national law you want to create here that would force those states to do things to prevent people with how you define mental illness buying weapons? Well, there's two separate issues here. One is the red flag law that you raised. And then secondly, there is the adjudication through a court of law for someone who poses a risk to themselves or to others. And uh, that's uh, on the books. It's in 
virtually every state, and that's dependent upon action that a family member might take when they identify another family member that is a risk. Uh, it might be uh, the police that could identify that uh, of somebody that's on the streets, or it could be a whole host of ways, but it would get it into court. So this is not a federal law that needs to uh, be passed. It is actually a matter of practice and that the civil libertarians pushed us away from this action 50 years ago, and we've never returned to uh, that kind of action when we see the problem in an individual. On the red flag law, that yep. is a separate issue, and there's a resistance because it's not uh, a going into a court and fully adjudicating it. It is uh, we're still studying the experience that they had in Florida on this. We want to make sure it's due process, it's fair, and you're not unnecessarily taking right. firearms away from somebody just because they say uh, they're having a bad day. Governor, there's so much more to get into with you. I got to leave it there for today. Thank you for joining us. And we turn now to Arizona Democratic Senator Mark Kelly, who joins us from Tucson. Senator, um, welcome to the program. Thank you, Margaret. Um, I have a lot to get to with you, but I want to start on this issue. Mm -hmm. Our viewers um, remember, of course, uh, that your wife, Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, was critically injured in a shooting many years ago. You've made gun safety a real priority issue. Um, your colleague, Senator Murphy of Connecticut, said to me recently, something is dying inside the soul of this nation. Do you think America's numb to gun, gun violence? Well, I don't think we're numb to it. And it's uh, really heartbreaking to see moms across the country terrified about sending their kids to school. I mean, it's not the country we should live in. Uh, I have a two-year-old granddaughter. And in her preschool, she's already gone through one lockdown. Now, she's two. She doesn't know what it was. But, I mean, this if, if, if we don't make some serious change, this is going to be her experience uh, growing up. Uh, we have some of the most permissive gun laws in the world, and we have the, some of the highest levels of gun violence. We passed this bipartisan Safer Communities Act. It is a step in the right direction, but it's only one step, and there is more we can do. Um, on that law, uh, it, as we just talked about with, with Mr. Hutchinson, it gave a billion dollars for school mental health resources. About 188 million has been awarded to about 30 states so far. Is that money moving fast enough? Uh, is there more that can be done with these resources already allocated? Well, I think this issue is so important to address and so tragic and, you know, Margaret, I'm a gun owner. I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment, but we make it so easy for irresponsible people and crim criminals to get access to firearms. Uh, there are three schools in Arizona that have already gained access to, to this money, but, you know, moving it into the states and into communities faster yeah. is going to be, it's going to be helpful. Yeah. Well, it only really began moving in February. Um, you, you just heard uh, Asa Hutchinson, who was running for president, talk about institutionalizing people with mental health issues to avoid mass shootings. It's something that Mike Pence, the former vice president who's running, uh, also said at the NRA this weekend. He also called for the death penalty for mass shooters. Um, how do you assess those solutions? Well, Governor Hutchinson also said that he didn't want to compel states to um, to comply with the uh, red flag laws. Um, you know, we provided money and it's voluntary for states. We could make that mandatory. Red flag laws work. I mean, we, we have data that shows that in states that have red flag laws, you prevent you prevent gun violence. So that's certainly a place to start. And we provided money for mental health services. We've got a mental health crisis in our country. Uh, there's more we can do. Um, but, you know, listen to the, you know, the former vice president to say that this isn't about, you know, firearms not about guns. I mean, it is. I mean, we just make it way too easy. How about, you know, more background checks? Uh, you know, here in the state of Arizona or Texas or many places, you can go to a gun show and get a gun without a back background check. That doesn't make sense to most Americans. Um, we have to take a break here, Senator. I want to talk to you on the other side of it about your recent trip to Ukraine and other issues. So please stay with us. More from Senator Kelly in one minute. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. 
So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We're back now with Arizona Senator Mark Kelly. Um, Senator, I know you just returned from Ukraine. uh, So I want to ask you about this news that we got confirmed essentially this week in these leaked Pentagon documents that estimate Ukraine will deplete their stock of anti-aircraft missiles within weeks. It's been widely reported how quickly they're going through ammunition. How concerned are you that this is going to give Russia the opportunity to have air superiority? Well, Margaret, I spent 25 years uh, in the United States Navy. I flew in combat. Um, this is my first time I've actually you know, went to a, a, a war zone, a country that's been brutally attacked by, by Vladimir Putin. Uh, there's war crimes committed every day. I mean, the situation is just heartbreaking. You know, one of the things we were looking at was, uh, you know, their ammunition supply. I don't want to comment specifically on the classified uh, intelligence here. Um, but we have to make sure that we continue to give them the weapons and the weapon systems uh, that they need to be successful. We cannot allow Putin to win this thing. I mean, he... Uh, you know, he said what his plan is. I mean, he wants to rebuild the Soviet empire. And if we don't stop him in Ukraine, I mean, there is no telling where he will go next. But when you say more ammunition, you specifically mean more anti-aircraft missiles now. No, I mean, there's, uh, you know, rounds for their howitzers. Uh, They need to, you know, their air defense system is challenged as well. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. what you're specifically talking about. Neither Russia nor Ukraine have air superiority at at this time. That's important in a combat zone. And to get it is is challenging. And they're using a lot of their weapons. I mean, um, they, they, you know, HIMARS is another example. So the purpose of this trip was to see what they need, see what we can supply. I'll go back to, to DOD and to the administration uh, and give them, you know, my assessment of what the situation in Ukraine is. Uh, President Biden has said they don't need F-16s. You disagree? Well, I think it's something we need to look at. Um, and I've communicated that to uh, the Department of Defense and the administration. Uh, we recently evaluated here in Arizona, in Tucson, where I live, two Ukrainian F-16 pilots. I spoke to the instructor pilots. Um, it's still unclear exactly how they want to use the F-16. They're looking for the next game changer. Mm-hmm. F-16 is not an artillery piece. It's not a tank. It's very complicated uh, and hard to maintain. Yeah. Um, we, we, we've also looked at some other options. I mean, there are other countries that have F- F-16s as well. That might become uh, an option, but it's going to take some time. I mean, the assessment here is it'll, it'll take uh, about a year to train you know, 12 Ukrainian, if we go that route, 12 Ukrainian uh, MiG-29 pilots. Senator Kelly, it's good to have you on the program. We hope to have you back. We're going to have to leave it there for today. Stay with us. We want to bring in Chief Legal Correspondent Jan Crawford to help us understand what is going on legally when it comes to abortion access and this pill. Jan, it's good to have you here. Um, We know the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade back in June they sent the decision back to states. Now we're back at the Supreme Court talking about abortion access again. Will they hear this case on the pill? Well, I mean, no, I don't think so. But first of all, let's think about what they did last June. They said in that Dobbs decision, there's no constitutional right to abortion. States can decide what they want to do with it, let it play out in the political process. And that's exactly what we've seen. We've seen the red states, the more conservative states restrict or even ban abortion. We've seen the blue states, the more liberal states say we're going to keep it widely available. This case here is an effort by a conservative legal group in Texas to restrict abortion nationwide in every state by trying to out 
outlaw a pill that's used in more than half of all abortions in this country. They're saying that the FDA didn't properly approve this pill 23 years ago. Mm -hmm. And a federal judge in Texas, who's a Trump appointee, by the way, agreed with that. So now the case is before the Supreme Court, whether they should get involved. And I don't think the justices are going to go along with this. I think they're going to block that lower court judge's order. They're going to keep this pill pill available nationwide. And that's because there are conservative legal principles that go to the heart of this case. This is not a case about the right to abortion. This is not a case about the Constitution. This is a case about jurisdiction and administrative law. This is a case that says Do these challengers have standing to go into court and attack a law, a a procedure that they just don't agree with? I don't think the court's going to go along with that. I think it's probably going to be at least 7-2 and maybe even 9-0. Blocking the lower court's order and keeping this pill available nationwide. That would be... Surprising for those assuming a conservative leaning court. But the conservative legal principles at the heart of this case Mm -hmm. say you've got to have a good reason to go into federal court and challenge something. You can't just say, I don't agree with this. Mm -hmm. You've got to show that you were harmed by it, that you had a stake in it. And that's not clear here. And if the court goes along with this, in this case, Mm -hmm. it will be at odds with what they have said in other cases in the past about the role of federal judges to get involved in social disputes. I think it would be very surprising if the court blocks this pill. Let's take a break. Come back. I have more questions for you, Jen. So we'll be right back. And we'll speak to New Mexico Democratic Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. Stay with us. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. So stay with us. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Face the Nation, and we are back now with our chief legal correspondent, Jan Crawford. Jan, I want you to take something head on, which is this Democratic argument that if uh, that if this one FDA approved drug for abortion uh, is blocked, that all drugs are somehow at risk. Is that true? I mean, I think that's a valid argument. If the if the courts are going to say lower the bar. Uh, and let people come into the federal courts to challenge things that were approved 23 years ago, uh, even if they haven't been harmed by the drug. I mean, it's hard. It's certainly a valid argument, and it could apply in other cases with other social issues. If the court lowers the bar in this case, mm-hmm. you're going to see conservative groups on other social issues going into the Supreme Court and saying they have a right to sue here, too. You're going to embroil federal judges back into these social issue disputes, which, if we take the Supreme Court at its word, Mm -hmm. is exactly what they said should not be happening. All right. Jen Crawford, I have to leave it there. Thank you for your time. And we turn now to New Mexico's Democratic governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham. It's good to have you back here in studio. Thank you, Margaret. I'm happy to be here. So your state is part of a 20-state coalition of uh, governors, the Reproductive Freedom Alliance. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the states in it have started stockpiling this um, medication for abortion. When you were here in February, you said that's the wrong focus, the wrong question. Well, has it changed? No, for me, it hasn't changed. And we weren't we're going to make sure and we already are that we have access to all of those medications. But if the response is we'll stockpile instead of protecting all access, uh, then we're minimizing the work that we have to do to make sure that women and families are fully protected. Not that in and of itself, there's a disagreement by state that's making sure that irrespective of the legal decisions, 
we're going to make sure that medication abortion is available in our state. But I think that we are moving. Uh, and to Jan's point, it's every social issue that you disagree with. Is it stem cell research? Is it fertility drugs? Whatever it is in this context, if we're going to use the federal courts as a way to bar and ban access, uh, we are looking at a national abortion ban and mm-hmm. more. And I think states have to band together to do as much as they can in opposition to that. And the states are on the front lines here because there is no federal guarantee the court kicked it back to That's right. chief executives like yourself back in June. So currently in New Mexico, abortion is legal, but you don't actually have a law codifying it. I know you want to write one. We do. We do now. So the last time I was here, we didn't. And uh, you were, and thank you, talking about Colorado's uh, work. We now have a law both codifying uh, right to abortion, abortion care and access, as well as gender affirming care in the state. So that just got signed by me. Well, so nail down for me then, how do you define, because up, up till now, my understanding is there wasn't a limit on when in a pregnancy, a woman could receive an abortion. Have you set any limit? There on are it? no limits. So for us, that's very controversial. Me, it can be. I mean, look, it's the 1% of all abortions and, uh, that's still a sizable number of abortions worldwide. 1% over 21 weeks of pregnancy. Correct. However, you know, look, these are women, uh, that, uh, have named these, uh, uh, soon to be born babies. These are horrific medical conditions. And again, New Mexico's position and mine is that we should not be interfering with a woman's, right, medical situation and her decision about that life-threatening potential circumstance. So we shouldn't be doing that. Explain that. How do you yeah. define fetal viability and, and, or that line. So you say it's very, very uncommon, it, but it is, it, that is not defined. It is left to two physicians make that decision with the patient. That's the issue is that the government, two physicians. Two physicians. Mm-hmm. And so the fear is that folks could take that to an extreme. If someone has um, an affliction that isn't life threatening. Well, of course. And that they're that picking is, and choosing which children they want to carry to term or not. I find that argument not to be nearly as compelling as uh, the arguments that we make, that we should be focused on contraceptives and better maternal health care, which means you have better outcomes. It's the wrong side of the argument, and it pushes buttons for people's fears about what's really happening. Late-term abortions should uh, occur as rarely as humanly possible, mm-hmm. and they should be only for life-threatening conditions of the of the fetus or the mother, and that should be analyzed by that physician. If we start making any access points, which we are all around the country, you end up with triggers and six weeks, fewer than six weeks. Uh, these are all barriers to women's health care comprehensive reproductive health care. And New Mexico is going to stand with many other states to make sure that's not the direction we're headed in. So your state has become this um, haven of sorts for the surrounding states that do heavily restrict abortion, like Texas. Um, and Oklahoma. And Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. So that's, I'm sure, part of your calculus here in, in crafting the laws you did. Um, but I wanted to come back to something you said, both in February and on other remarks. You talked about using federal lands Mm-hmm. You talked about talking to the tribes in your state. You have a mm-hmm. large um, uh, tribal population there. You said we're moving towards tribal nations providing access, including abortion. The Hyde Amendment uh, pre- prevents federal dollars being used for abortion. But the sovereign White House land, not yeah, but this. sovereign land is a whole different designation of Are federalism and federal land. We aren't doing it now, but I think we will, and I think we can. How? Well, a couple different ways. A sovereign nation makes its own decisions. Now, the question that I think you're asking is, would we use Medicaid to actually pay for those services? That is complicated with the Hyde Amendment. So the answer there is no. But we do a ton of state investments, and tribes have their own resources. They're already building behavioral health clinics. They run hospitals. Mm -hmm. They run primary care clinics. They're already in the business of delivering health care. And at least one of those tribes, a Pueblo in New Mexico uh, has certainly indicated that they would be more than ready, willing, able and interested to make sure that access because women of color 
have limited access mm-hmm. uh, for a number of reasons all over the country. And these are Pueblos. I want to make sure that the the women and families in their Pueblo or sovereign nation have equal access, irrespective of distances that they might have to travel. Because last June, Vice President Harris was asked about this, and she said, no, the White House isn't looking at it. Are they looking at it, or is this just you? Well, I don't think the White House is looking at it, but they have heard loud and clear uh, from a variety of states, including New York, that every federal tool in the toolbox ought to be used to protect and expand access. New Mexico has an opportunity with 23 independent tribes to do that in a little different way. And so the point was, we won't leave any access point, right, on the table if it makes sense and yeah. we have willing partners. I want to quickly ask you about the water crisis. Um, there's this debate over the Colorado River, which appears to be drying up. It's been drought-stricken for like two decades now. Um, do you need the Biden administration to step in here because the states aren't settling this? I think we themselves. do. And I think uh, having at least $4 billion, which is an incentive, look, uh, people aren't going to give up water rights and uh, automatically lean in to do conservation. It's hard mm-hmm. uh, and it's full of risk. The Biden administration, rightly so, got money available to create incentives so that we're doing better conservation and management. You've got six states working pretty well together. California, big water user, going to be tough. But uh, with good snowpacks, money, incentives and cooperation, we're in the best place ever to do something meaningful about this. Governor, thank you for your time. Thank you. Good to have you back. And we'll be right back. We turn now to the Republican chairman of the Intelligence Committee, Ohio Congressman Mike Turner. Good to have you back. Thank you. Do you have any sense yet of the scale of the damage caused by the leak of this classified material by apparently this 21-year-old airman who has been arrested? Not completely, but clearly there's damage that's done. I mean, we have documents classified because we don't want them to get in the hands of our adversaries, and these have been widely circulated. So obviously these are, are, are damaging both the United States and to our allies. You know, what's troubling here is, you know, when you look at the documents that were circulated, that uh, you know, without, without a, the care of, of its handling, you know, these relate to actual real people. The marks on maps are, are real people, and they can inf- impact people's lives, and that's certainly our concern. President Biden said when it came to the content of the messages and information, he wasn't concerned. You seem to disagree with that. Well, I can tell you President Zelensky certainly would be concerned, and so would our other allies. Um, whenever we're trusted with information, we're working in partnership with someone. You know, our in- intelligence gathering, our intelligence information, if it is released, can represent a vulnerability to them. Uh, mm-hmm. So obviously it's an issue uh, that's troubling and that, that needs to be addressed. In the, the outcome for the Ukraine conflict, though, it's early enough, and these are static documents, meaning they're pictures of a p- exact period of time, and uh, mitigation can happen, people can change their strategies, and, and that can change the outcome. I asked this question to Senator Kelly about the concern of Ukraine running through its ammunition stocks too quickly. Right. So some of these documents would be in the in the form of management documents. When you look at inventories or depleting inventories, uh, they, too, are static. Uh, What they show is a to do list and what we need to do and our allies need to do to help Ukraine uh, to replenish uh, those. It doesn't indicate that they have no other sources and that, in fact, they will, uh, will run out and be completely open and vulnerable to Russia. Okay, so not necessarily it would be a leap to say Russia will have air dominance on this date because they run out of this thing on the leak itself. um, The individual who is accused here, Mr. Texera, there's video that circulated of him saying racist things, shooting guns, anti-Semitic things. He's apparently posted these things on social media and they were there undetected for a long period of time. What part of this needs to change? Because clearly the protocols failed. Right. Absolutely. And if you look at the actual complaint and affidavit that was filed when he was arraigned, you you have the um, the also admission from the Department of Defense that they are able to track his movements. So clearly he was having access to documents that he should not have had access to. And someone should have been paying attention, tapping him on the shoulder and, and ending that access. But in this instance, as you just indicated, you know, through life patterns, there were clearly signals that that he would might be a likely uh, leaker of information in the future. And then also the access that he was having to this information uh, should have been cut off. He should have never been having access to this level of, of classified information that could hurt the United States. But he was working basically in tech support. 
It wasn't necessarily analyzing this information. Right. He had no reason. There was no need to know for him of the information that he was accessing. And the Department of Defense admits in the affidavit that they had the ability to track him. That's going to be the questions my committee is going to be having. So we're going to be having hearings on this. And what we need to do and from the 9-11 Commission, we learned that we needed to more widely disseminate classified information so that people had actionable intelligence that they could piece together puzzles. Clearly, we've gone too far and where we have an instance where someone in Massachusetts who's looking at documents with respect to war plans in Ukraine and the Department of Defense knows. And that's what our committee is going to be looking at is how do we make certain we make changes? I want to. So to make those changes, I want to ask you to clarify this, um, because there are some conservatives saying things like Tucker Carlson has your colleague Marjorie Taylor Greene in defense of this individual, this 21-year-old man. Um, she called him essentially heroic, white male, Christian, anti-war, an enemy to the Biden regime. She said he told the truth about troops being on the ground in Ukraine and a lot more. Well, first off, let's be clear. Uh, there are there are no U.S. troops on, on the ground in Ukraine other than the troops that are normally at an embassy protecting right. the embassy. We do not have They're troops not on, on the, the ground. We do not have have uh, have troops on the ground. So it's absolutely in, incorrect assumption from the documents that, that this um, uh, individual leaked. The other aspect is um, he's guilty of, of if he's brought through this process and he's found guilty. It will be of espionage. It's of being a traitor to your country. That's not someone who to, be, to look up to. That is someone who has compromised his country and has certainly compromised uh, our allies. That's not the oath that he took. That's not the job that he took. Right. Um, you are in the Gang of Eight, that small group of lawmakers that gets access to some of the most uh, classified information, including the documents that were found at the residence of President Biden, uh, President Trump and former Vice President Pence. Have you looked at the documents and are your questions answered? Right. No. So the Department of Justice has not been forthcoming in this. And they've, they've been somewhat disingenuous. And certainly both the House and the Senate are going to have to address this. One, the documents that were delivered to Congress are not complete. And secondly, they don't identify whose documents they were, whether they came from the trove um, of Biden's behind the uh, Corvette or whether they came from Mar Largo. Um, that obviously has that to be addressed. Timing thing. ought to be able to right. tell us, but still at the same time to deliver those documents without even designating whose documents they work clearly shows, you know, a, a, an unwillingness to be work closely with Congress. Uh, and this also, it's incomplete. I can tell you this in the reviews that we've had so far of indexes that do include the documents. There's no nuclear codes here. There's no, no one had anything that, that, that uh, was of extreme imminent threat. Have you seen the everything? Or we've in the- seen the, the index of them. Okay. We've gotten some of the documents delivered to us. Um, but the Department of Justice really needs to, to come clean. They need to deliver the documents to Congress. Uh, they promised them to us and they, they need to work with us so that we can get an assessment of what happened here. There are laws that need to be changed so that we can more protect our classified documents yeah. and those who handle them. Uh, and so we, we need them to work with us. The White House gave access to the classified after action report on Afghanistan about a week ago. Have you seen it yet? I have. And um, the well, so the um, I'm. Um, I'm very concerned that the Biden administration is looking more for fault uh, blame and blame than really action items as to what we need to do. What, what clearly happened here um, in the abrupt uh, departure from Afghanistan is that a number of mistakes were made. We can only make certain that we don't repeat those mistakes if we're able to, to mm-hmm. really understand them. Congress has put together an Afghan commission uh, that is reviewing our time there and our exit. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a very helpful avenue also of getting understanding of what happened and how do we not do this again? Congressman, uh, it's good to have you here. There's a lot to get through, and uh, we hope to have you back soon. We'll be back in a moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're joined now by Christine Lagarde, former head of the IMF, now the president of the European Central Bank. Good morning. Good, Good to morning, have you Margaret. here. Lovely to be back. And your recovery is going all right? Yes. In a couple of days, I think I'll be fine. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, you have a long list of things ahead of you, and I want to ask you about the global recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, you were speaking a few days ago, and you said the recovery for the economy is fragile and uncertain. In this country, the Fed thinks we'll see a mild recession later this year. Mm-hmm. What is it that you predict? First of all, There is recovery. That's, I think, a point that was uh, not really firm only six months ago, where we all assumed that there would be a recession, um, if only a technical one. If you look at all the forecasts at the moment, it's all positive. It's been slightly downgraded. But overall, we have a recovery. And we are faced with high uncertainty because of multiple factors. You know, from our corners of the world, it's the war in Ukraine. It's the financial stability uh, that clearly has been shaken up a bit by uh, the U.S. and Switzerland developments. It's uh, inflation that we are fighting. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's all that which really create a a hollow of uncertainty around a recovery that we want to embed. That's, That's pretty much where we are. So there were those recent bank failures here in the United States, also one in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Um, Given that it sounds like you're saying you don't see a hard landing. You're seeing a positive trajectory for the global economy. I think we have a narrow path to navigate, which requires that uh, both the governments and uh, the central banks around the world mm-hmm. adopt the right policies. Given the bank failures we just saw, you hear from bank CEOs in this country, mm-hmm. uh, this idea that they're getting more cautious about lending money, yeah. lar- largely, that there's some contraction in credit there. How concerned are you, and how does that complicate your planning? It's funny you should ask complication, because in a way it facilitates my planning, and it complicates the future as because far as Because it slows growth. down business activity. Yes. So you don't have to yes. raise rates as much or as frequently. We don't have to reduce. We, we'll see. Because we need to really measure mm-hmm. what will come out of this, uh, this financial um, events that took place recently. What impact will it have? How will banks react? How will they assess risk? And how much credit will they lend? Uh, but if they don't lend too much credit, and if they manage their risk it might reduce the work that we have to do to reduce inflation. Mm-hmm. Okay? But if they reduce too much credit, then it will weigh on growth excessively. There are predictions that the U.S. could default in its national debt as soon as June, some say September. And we have a political standoff in this country, virtually no negotiation happening on, on how to resolve this. Does that undermine your confidence in the United States? And, and what message does that send to the world? I have huge confidence in the United States. You know, ever since my year in this country, in this city, in 73, 74, I have had confidence in this country. And I just cannot believe that they would let such a major, major disaster happen of the United States defaulting on its debt. This is not possible. I cannot believe that it would happen. But if it did happen, it would have very, very negative impact not just for this country, where confidence would be challenged, but around the world. Let's face it. This is the largest economy. Uh, it's, it's a major leader in economic growth around the world. It cannot let that happen. I understand the politics. I've been in politics myself. Mm-hmm. But there is a time when the higher interest of a nation has to prevail. I'm sorry. And you think that will happen? The higher I interest. have huge trust in this country, yet again. Um, you're bringing a lot of optimism to a show where we don't have a lot of optimism. Oh, Madame I'm sorry. Lagarde. No, I like it. it it's interesting. It's a change. Um, I want to ask you, though, about what you just said in terms of U.S. leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, you look to the other side of the globe, and Xi Jinping has said he wants China to be the world's leading power mm-hmm. by 2049. Um, and Beijing is very interlinked into so many economies, particularly in Europe. Um, is the U.S. losing global influence? 
There is clearly a competition between these, these large economies. What I hope very much is that they can have a dialogue because, you know, all these relationships, whether it's trade, whether it's politics, whether it's economic development, whether it is financial stability, it's a two-way street. Mm-hmm. We cannot ignore each other and trade should not be confrontational. It has to be careful. It has to identify the areas that are strategic for one country or the other, or all the others, but it shouldn't be confrontational. I'm on the same page as Henry Kissinger on that, or Kevin Rudd, the new Australian ambassador. Conflict is not unavoidable. But there is, it seems, increased political pressure to choose between the United States and China Mm. in many ways Mm. um, in some of these political capitals. Is that even practical uh, from an economic point of view? It would lead to economic downside. The, the amount of which is uncertain. Is the global economy going to be affected by one or X percent? There are multiple forecasts. All of them are negative. So the decoupling and the sort of bipolarization of the world would lead to less economic growth, less prosperity in the world, more poverty across the world. So I think that this is something that should be by all means avoided. Madam Lagarde, it's always wonderful to have you here. Thank you. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, Ohio Republican Congressman and Chairman of the Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner. Arizona Democratic Senator Mark Kelly, New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, and President of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.